this series that we're in, and we're just going to forge right ahead in our study through, this three-week study through the Song of Solomon. Some of your Bibles say the Song of Songs. It's the same thing, but we're digging into it, and, and, and I want to continue to, to go down that road. I, I don't want to unpack it all again, so please go back and watch that sermon as you get a chance to if you haven't done so already. But in a nutshell, the Song of Solomon, it is a love story. At the very heart of it, that's what it is. It is a love story, but it's not like the love stories that we read in other parts of the Bible, like I'm thinking about Ruth and Esther. This is unlike anything else in the Bible. I mean, you read the Song of Solomon, and, and you're like, wow, what did I just read? I mean, it's eight chapters of this love poem in this great poetic language. Some might even say it's, it's song lyrics. We know that Solomon wrote plenty of songs, but it's, it's a love story. And, and my guess would be that if you were reading this for the very first time, you'd get past the first chapter and scratch your head and say, I don't get it. But stay with it. Because the more you read it, the more you're going to absorb and you're going to start to understand what the heart of this poem is all about, that it expresses this uh, romantic love between a man and a woman who are in the process of getting married. That's what this story is all about. And it speaks about some very real life things. Like in real life things, but in a poetic detail. And you've got to kind of go through that language to get to the meaning of it and why it's in Scripture. It talks a lot about attraction. We spent a good deal of time last Saturday night talking about those first two chapters that, of this incredible attraction between this, this guy and this girl. And, and not just a little bit attracted, but I mean over the moon attracted to one another. And they end up falling in love and they end up getting married. And what I thought, you know, what a better way to spend the three remaining weeks in February, two now, um, the month of love, the month of Valentine's Day, than to spend some time exploring probably the most romantic book in the entire Bible, the Song of Solomon. So that's what we're doing. But you have this love song, this, this love poem, right smack in the middle of the Old Testament. It's eight chapters long. And in great detail, it talks about this love that this couple has. It talks about their engagement. It talks about all the excitement that they're experiencing with this engagement. It goes on to talk about their wedding day. It goes on to talk about their wedding night. And then it talks about intimacy. And what I confessed last week, I'll confess it again if you weren't here, that this is the first time in my entire career that I've ever preached out of the Song of Solomon. And quite honestly, it's because I didn't know how before now. And I didn't know how to do it without blushing. And if you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Even when I think about the scriptures I've got lined up for the day, I'm like, can I really read this in church? We're going to find out. I will. In fact, the Song of Solomon, as I shared last week, um, it, it's like so detailed in the way that it expresses married love um, that back in the day, back when Jesus was walking the earth, the Jewish leaders of the day, they would not allow men who were under the age of 30 to even read it. Like, no, 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 you got to be a certain age to explore the Song of Solomon. And the reason for that, as I understand it, is that they didn't exactly know how to deal with the language. I mean, it's in the Bible. They accept it. It's pretty detailed. Not sure what to do with it. They know it's a good thing, but they said, we've got to protect these youngsters from the Song of Solomon. And I guess if you were unmarried and 30, you were too young. You were a youngster. So I guess that's what that means. It was off limits. But the reality is that the Song of Solomon does speak about real life stuff. And aren't you glad that the Bible does speak about real life things? I'm glad about that. It, it records in, in, uh, in, in Song of Solomon 
that there is a love that God designed between a man and a woman, and, and we have to be clear about that in today's world, between a man and, and a woman, and, and we need to preach what the Bible says about that kind of relationship in its proper context. And, and if you read the Bible, and you get the full picture of what it says about how there's an attraction between a man and a woman, and that attraction grows into love, and that love goes into a marriage. And that marriage produces a relationship that's very intimate. And that's the progression that the, that the Bible speaks about. That is the progression that the Song of Solomon glorifies as an example to, to follow. Now, last week we did talk about attraction quite a bit. And what came with that were three questions. Do you remember the three questions? First question is, in any relationship, what do I want? And at the heart of that question, you find attraction. What do I want? What am I attracted to? That question leads to the second one. What do I need? What do I need? And then the, the third question is, what does God want? And how we left off last week is this. The most important question that you could ask comes when we say, what does God want? And no matter where you find yourself today, whether you're happily married or happily single, or, or somewhere trying to figure out what between those two things are. We all find ourselves in different situations. The most important question you could ask about any of it is, God, what do you want from me? That is more important than what I want. What does God want? That overrides everything. So now, as we work our way through this love story, and if you haven't so, please turn over to Song of Solomon. We're going to start in chapter 3. We got through the attraction phase, and as we continue down this story, we're going to pick up with Solomon riding into the city. He's about to make a big entrance in front of a lot of different people. This is a royal entrance that you might expect from a king on his wedding day. So we're going to pick up with the wedding day of Solomon. So this is Solomon chapter 3. Let's read in verse 6. And remember, this is poetry. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of a merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its post he made of silver. Its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered in purple. Its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. And look, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. What most scholars believe is that this is a description of Solomon's wedding day. And it sounds incredible, doesn't it? Reminds me of my wedding day. Coming into the church. I'm, no, nothing like this. Nothing like this. But he's riding in on this special carriage. There's detail about that. 60 warriors along with him. It's covered in gold and silver, purple upholstery. That's important detail because that's a royal color. Very expensive, very rare. He's wearing the crown. We can visualize this, can't we? We've seen enough movies, haven't we? We can put images to, to this kind of interest or, or this kind of scene. Now, interestingly enough, that's about all the details we get from the wedding itself. 
Now, you would think we would get a female perspective, you know, or it is her perspective, but I mean, like, and here's what she did, but we, we don't get that, per se, just what Solomon did. And then we move into chapter 4, and Solomon begins to talk about how beautiful his bride is, and as you're reading it, you begin to draw this connection. Oh, the wedding's over, and we have now, in chapter 4, moved on to the wedding night. And so let's pick up reading Solomon chapter 4, verse 1, and, and if you're single and you're a male and you're not yet 30, just plug your ears because it isn't for you. I'm kidding. This is the wedding night, and Solomon says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Can we make this safe assumption? Solomon likes what he sees. Fair enough? Solomon likes what he sees. But what is confusing today to us is how he describes what he sees and, and her beauty. Remember, this is poetry. I keep reminding you of that. This is not everyday language. I, uh, the, the way he describes how beautiful she is doesn't make a lot of sense to us. His, his description, did you catch it? Were you paying attention? He refers to her hair like a flock of goats. Now, that brings up a great mental image to me. <laughs> that describes something for me. Her teeth like a flock of sheep. Pomegranates are the fruit that he uses to describe her temples. And, and her neck is like the Tower of David. That's romantic. And, and, and he says fawns and gazelles, these are the animals that he is choosing to describe certain parts of her body. That's, and so, you know, an artist actually tried to capture how beautiful this woman is. They sat down and said, this is the most beautiful woman, and, and what does she look like? I have a picture of that. Um, this is her. Um, she's a knockout, isn't she? Based on Solomon's descriptions, so he says, your eyes are like doves, and, and your hair is like a flock of goats. So that's properly uh, drawn there. And um, the neck is like the Tower of David, and, 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 and all of those things. Now, let me tell you, that is one good-looking woman. No wonder he writes about her the way he does. Let me help you out here. You can take that picture down, so we're going to move on from that. Let me help you out. When Solomon, remember, this is poetry, when he describes that her eyes are like doves, what, what we believe he means by that is that, um, that she was graceful and she moved beautifully. It was kind of an understood thing back in Solomon's day that doves were a symbol of seduction. And so he's making a reference to the way her eyes are and what it does to him. So he just says they're like doves. When he describes her teeth like a flock of sheep, um, 
we believe that she, it just means that they're white and they're uniform and, and like, like she just brushed them. And so, you know, it's, he likes her smile. When he told her that her temples were like halves of pomegranate, I think he means that her face is symmetrical and her skin has that good color to it. I think that's what he means. He goes on like this for seven verses. And it's, it's hard for us to, to see this as romantic and language, but it, it is. This is him describing her, her beauty and what he thought of her. And this moment that he is describing, it's their wedding night. And it is a first for both of them together. This is, this is a part of her that he is seeing for the very first time. And I want to draw a very clear point here. This is after the wedding, not before. And this is such an important detail of this love story, and it adds another piece of our overall understanding of of the Bible, of God's complete picture, and what he desires between a man and a woman who maintain proper boundaries before marriage, And as we follow their love story, we see this attraction that leads to love and love that leads to marriage. And then then after marriage, they move into the intimate part of their relationship. Now that progression of things, which is consistent throughout the whole Bible, this is just a story of it being lived out, is such at odds with what the world teaches, doesn't it? I mean, I talked last week a little bit about how the Bible presents the progression of a relationship and how the world presents a progression of a relationship. These are two completely different things, polar opposites. And in just in case you're not tracking with me, this private moment between Solomon and his wife, it is just that. It is a private moment just between the two of them, and it happened after they got married, not before. Now, the very next verse, in verse 8, he says this, you got to come away with me. This is like Solomon's ready for the honeymoon to start, all right? Let's get out of here. And if you keep reading, he he continues to tell her just how beautiful she is. And and this goes on for another eight verses. Then, at the end of that, he transitions to another description of her. And this one's not so much about beauty, but he is praising her for her purity, So he goes from beauty to purity, and he describes her in these terms, and you can read it on your own if you'd like, but he starts to talk about her as a garden. And then he says, the garden was locked up tight, and we get this impression that there's like a fence around it, and there's a gate, and there's a lock on it, because he's saying it's locked up, it's it's off limits, it's private, it's concealed. And the reason he's talking about her in this way is because he's acknowledging that now, once they've reached this part of the relationship, it's not a locked garden anymore. Are you following the symbolism? That's what he's acknowledging. He's acknowledging her purity in all this. And look how she responds to all of this praise and acknowledgement. Solomon chapter 4, verse 16 Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow in my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. This is the part that you blush on. And he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Can you think 
of another place in the Bible that has this much language and details about this moment in a couple's life? I can't. He said, some of what we just read may make you blush, or maybe you just got lost in the poetry of it all, but it does teach us God's perspective and God's intentions for intimacy. That's what it does. It reinforces the teaching in the Bible of of God's intentions for intimacy and what God wants. And in my opinion, there has never been another time when God's perspective and his intention for intimacy has been more ignored than it is today. That's my opinion. In this first message, I, I talked about, again, and I'll reference again, there's two polar opposites happening in our culture. There's the world's position on this stuff, and then there's the Bible's position. And as Christians, we're either going to follow God's word on this subject, or we're going to follow the teachings of the world. And quite honestly, the reason I said what I just did is because I see a lot of Christians following the opinion of the world in this matter. A number of years ago, while I was the pastor up in Kansas City, I received a phone call in my office um, from a lady. I did not know her. She introduced herself to me. And, um, and as we began to talk, she said that she's married, or excuse me, she's getting married, and that her and her fiance are looking for a church and looking for a minister to marry them. This is not an unusual request, by the way. And I asked them, I asked her, I said, do you go to church anywhere? And she said, oh yes, I faithfully attend my church. I've faithfully attended for years. Um, and I said, well, that's great. Question for you. Why don't you get married there? And it's an honest question. A lot of churches have limitations in their facility and this and that. And maybe she just liked our church. I don't know. But I asked her, well, why don't you get married over there? And, and she said, well, we can't get married over there because my pastor won't marry us. Now, I've been doing this long enough. I, I know where this conversation is going. But I'm not going to assume anything. So I just asked her, why won't your pastor marry you? What seems to be the problem? And she said, well, his conscience won't allow it. So I said, why won't your pastor's conscience allow it? She said, he won't marry us because my fiance and I are living together. And before I could say anything else, she proceeded to give me an earful And it started out like this. What is it with you pastors anyway? That's always how you get what you want, right? Like, what is it with you pastors? You're all the same. That's kind of the tone that she was using with me on the phone. She says, I don't know why you guys are making such a big deal of this. I'm 41 years old. Of course we're going to live together. Of course we're intimate with one another. That's what 41-year-old people do. And I guess, you know, from from my perspective, I did not say this to her, but from my perspective, I thought, well, I guess you think that after you turn 41, God stops caring what you do with your body. We talked for a few minutes more. I did not shut her down, nor did I, on that phone call, adamantly refuse to do her wedding. Um, But I did ask her, I said, hey, would you and your fiance be willing to meet with me? Would you study God's word with me for a while? Can we explore this subject together and what God says about marriage? 
Just so you know, these kind of conversations happen all the time, by the way. This is not some strange thing that happened. I, I talk with couples all the time who are walking through this journey. And I'll just tell you up front what my approach to something like this is. I see this as an opportunity to explore together what God's will is because certainly there's either disobedience or they don't know. And so I asked, would you explore this with me? I, I don't see this as opportunities to slam the door and, and reject. I look at it as God's opportunities to study God's word and learn and teach. And like the Bible says, hopefully win some. That's what the Bible says, right? Because in my heart, I believe God cares more about where you're going than where you've been. And these are opportunities to lead, not cast out. Well, this particular lady was not interested in studying the Bible or anything like that. And the last thing she said to me was, that's never going to happen, Pastor, not going there. And she said this, and I'll never forget her words. She says, I'm a good person, and I love Jesus, and I'm not out to hurt anybody. I just don't see what the big deal is. Click. And it's that last statement like I said, that really stands out to me. I don't see what the big deal is. And I wish that, that that was the exception. But unfortunately, it's becoming more of the rule and the norm, even for those who attend church regularly and who claim to follow Jesus. Because what they're doing is they're following what the world says about these things like attraction and boundaries and marriage and intimacy. They've bought in to the path that the world says and they're disobedient to what the Bible says. Do you guys know how easy my job would be if I got to skip all the parts in the Bible that like cut against the grain of worldly thinking? Do you know how easy my job would be you know how much more fun my job would be if I just got to preach on all the feel-good stuff? But that's not my job. My job is to preach the whole counsel of God. And so when you preach the whole counsel of God, you move into other parts of the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 6.13. Let me just read it to you. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ, unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whatever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee. From sexual immorality, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to the church. Now, there is so much to unpack here, and this is not my main text for today. I just want you to see one thing from this scripture, and it's verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This is one of those places in the Bible that just kind of digging back into the original language actually helps us a little bit, because that English phrase, sexual immorality, that thing that we're supposed to flee from, is the Greek word pornea, and pornea is what gets translated into that. There is another word that we don't use as much. Maybe your translation of the Bible uses this word, but pornea is where we get the word fornication. 
And fornication, if you strip that down and understand what it means, because this is, this is one of these things that people will justify all day long and put their own definition to it, but there is no wiggle room in Scripture for this word, pornea. It's fornication. It literally means being intimate with someone, any intimate act, who is not your spouse. That's what that means. It's being intimate with somebody you are not married to. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5 when, and when it gets translated marital unfaithfulness. Um, it's the same Greek word Paul used in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 13, or 5, 3 that says, Among you there must not even be a hint of pornea, a hint of sexual morality, a hint of this kind of stuff. You take all of that and we, we just know, and I'm going to tell you because you don't know, that God is the one who created intimacy. And it's a beautiful thing. God created it for us. It is a gift and it shouldn't be looked at in any other way but a gift of God. It is a gift of pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with it when it is practiced within a marital relationship only. But like many things that God created and is beautiful and holy and pure, well, with the help of the enemy, we can sure make a perversion out of it fast. So according to the Bible, there is only one scenario where being intimate is not offensive towards God, and there's only one scenario where being intimate with somebody is not destructive to you, and that is within the bonds of marriage. So Paul said this in Hebrews 13:4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now I'm going to ask you as a question, church. You don't need to raise your hand. In fact, I'm don't raise your hand. Well, I'm not going there. But is this how you understand scripture today? Is this how you understand this subject is your personal conviction and practice in sync with scripture and if it's not then there's only one thing you can do and that's verse 18 flee from sexual immorality that's what you got to do have nothing to do with it you have to get away from it you got to treat it like it's a toxic gas and one breath of it will take you down as paul writes flee from pornea, flee from fornication, flee from sexual immorality. And perhaps maybe you're sitting here today and you might be thinking to yourself, and you might even be a little bit uncomfortable, but you might be thinking to yourself, I haven't always made choices in my life that reflect what you're talking about. And if I had to guess about our church, the size we are, there are plenty of marriages that came together more from a worldly path than a biblical path. And so we ask this question, I haven't, like what's going to happen to me if I haven't gone this path that the Bible talks about? Is it possible to change? Can God forgive somebody who, who hasn't always fled from sexual morality? Can I ever be blameless? Can I ever be spotless in the eyes of God? Paul said this in that very same passage. It's up a couple verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He said, don't be deceived. 
neither the sexual, sexual immoral, immoral or idolaters or adulterers or male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanders nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, literally it really is, Paul says, and that's what some of you were. Don't you love that? That's what some of you were. You're not that now, but you were that. But you've changed now. You're not the same person you were. You used to be those things. You're not that now. And, 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 and you're something completely different. So let me answer your question. Yes, you can be spotless before God. Yes, you can have a new life. Yes, 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 and all these things. Why? What does Paul say the very next thing? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I believe with all my heart that no matter what sin you are bound by, you can be set free. And I hope we have a full church of people who acknowledge that. Jesus said, whoever the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. Can a person change? From this type of sin, the answer is unquestionably, by the power of Jesus Christ, yes, you can. So if you are here today and this is an area of your life that you are failing in, I want to invite you to take a second chance. I want to invite you to have a from this day forward mentality. God cares more about where you're going than where you have been. And if you will bow your head in humility before your heavenly father and you will tell him from your heart that you are sorry and if you will repent and come clean before God and stop this current trajectory that you are on and make a vow that in, with God's help and his strength you will forge a new path I believe with all my heart God will honor that and I believe with all of my heart what the scripture says he will forgive you so take a second chance and you can do that right now and you can put over your marriage and you can put over your family and you can put over any relationship that you find yourself in you can even put this over your singleness you can put this over your divorce you can put this over all kinds of things a from this day forward mentality from this day forward my life is going to be for the lord from this day forward i'm going to do it god's way from this day forward, I'm not going to be bound in chains of this kind of lifestyle. God forgave me. That's what I was. It's not what I'm going to be. It's what I was. It's not what I am now. From this day forward, take the second chance. God will forgive. Can I pray for you?